Hello and welcome to the Barbarians at the Gate podcast. This is Jeremiah Jenny I'm coming at you from Beijing and with me is my co-host David Moser. David, where are you calling in from today? Uh, from uh, Oklahoma City, as usual. A, bit, a deep red state here. And it's the 4th of July today, Jeremiah. I hope you remember that. Uh, I, I did. We, we, uh, we, got some, we got some cheeseburgers and some hot dogs. And uh, I just spent the last three hours mansplaining the American Revolution to my <laughs> wife while watching Hamilton. And for those who keep up with China, our guest today doesn't really need an introduction. Ian Johnson first visited China as a student in the 1980s and was a fixture in the foreign correspondent community uh, beginning in the 1990s. As a journalist, he covered a wide range of topics for the Baltimore Sun, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and he's been awarded the Pulitzer Prize for his reporting on China as well as the, St- the Stanford University Shorenstein Prize for his body of work on Asia. In recent years, his articles and dispatches can be found in the New York Review of Books, mainly writing on long-term social issues. And uh, his most recent book, uh, published a couple of years ago, is The Souls of China, The Return of Religion After Mao, which was named by The Economist and The Christian Science Monitor, among many others, as their best book of the year and is probably one of the most if not the most uh recommended china book uh by me for uh for students and the groups that i work with over the last couple of years as well so it's our really great pleasure to have with us on the podcast uh ian johnson uh ian you're in you're in london right now is that right I am. Uh, thank you for that generous introduction. I fixated especially on the word fixture, which makes me feel like I'm part of sort of like a, a bathroom set, maybe the toilet. So uh, I think that's <laughs> probably quite... Uh, yeah, no, I am in London. Um, I've been here since February, and um, and I'm going to be in Waiguo uh, for the foreseeable future after uh, the diplomatic... Uh, spats between the U.S. and and China resulted in the uh, many foreign correspondents losing their their visas, myself included. Well, let's just jump into that, uh, Ian. So the year their 2020 has been obviously quite eventful, uh, sort of living up to its reputation as the metal rat year. Uh, if you go back to, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about for the, our listeners, go back to the Jeff Wasserstrom podcast and you can get the, the full information on that. But why don't you catch us up on, in fact, what the year has brought for you uh, personally and professionally? Uh, yeah, well, well, this was going to be a big year of change for me. I was planning that it would I'd be winding down my work in journalism anyway in China Um, and I was uh, planning to go back to London in February, which I did because my partner and I are expecting, we're expecting then a child, and indeed the child was born in, in April. Um, and so we were planning to be in London and then go back to China um, sometime around now um, and, and sort of spend the rest of the year and then go on from there, um, pro- probably sort of leave China essentially um, and, and move back. Uh, back somewhere to Europe probably but then when I was after I arrived in London for for the birth of our son um, we got notice from the foreign ministry uh, that there'd been these tit for tat 
expulsions. Uh, it started with the Trump administration's uh, misguided, I would say, effort to uh, be tough, get tough on China and sort of make China into its whipping boy, probably sensing that they needed some kind of a foreign policy success or something to to show voters and not really clear exactly what their motivation was. But they uh, expelled numerous, I think around 60 Chinese journalists in January. And this is something, this is a, an, probably an a separate conversation, but this is something that journalists um, in in China, foreign journalists in China, have thought about over the years. The Foreign Correspondents Club: How can we get more reciprocity from China? And we always advised against expelling Chinese journalists from the United States, um, even though we know that many of them are probably not journalists. Uh, maybe just using journalist accreditations to be in the United States for whatever purpose. But we always advised against it because we knew that, of course, this would be a perfect excuse to expel foreign journalists. And that's exactly what happened then in March. Uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs said that all the U.S. So all the, all the journalists with U.S. passports whose visas were coming due this year in 2020 for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and I think also CNN, is that right? Uh, you can correct yeah. me. Yeah. So all f- these four organizations, they all had to leave China. And uh, they, so that wasn't, in, in essence, it wasn't personal, but it was part of this diplomatic spat, which is now being ratcheted up again recently. I think last week the Trump administration said they were going to designate four more Chinese news organizations as essentially propaganda outlets and not real quote-unquote, how you define that, real news organizations. And so this is part of this overall worsening of ties, and uh, we just got caught up in that. So now, uh, I still got all my stuff in Beijing, <laughs> and, I, and just foolishly before leaving, I said, oh, my landlord, you know, I, I signed a year-by-year lease, and I just extended my lease for a full year, made the payment for 12 months, <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, paid my internet through the end of the year, and I did some, I just bought my, extended my health club thing, I'm like, I'm all set to come back, and then, and then, boom! I'm expelled from China. So, um, yeah. So it's obviously that speeds up my uh, departure from China, and I don't know when I'll be able to go back. I mean, I still I hope to go back at some point in the future, at least as a tourist. Uh, there's so many places in China. I guess maybe both of you feel this way. The, the longer you get in China the longer your bucket list gets of places you still want to mm. go to, you know, and you discover more of the country and then you say, oh God, you know, I've, you know, for example, I've never been to Huangshan, right? The yellow, yellow mountain. I've never been there. Um, there's so many famous places that I haven't been to, uh, that I still hope to go back to China at some point, but probably my days as a foreign correspondent, officially accredited foreign correspondent in China are over. Um, so that's sort of where I'm at now. But, you know, I was going to do it. It was going to happen anyway, but it certainly sped everything up by about 12 months. Yeah, Ian, I mean, one of the things you mentioned about the like the Foreign Correspondents Club of China and other China-based journalists not thinking that this kind of um, reciprocity could be better served uh, by not expelling a journalist from the United States, you know, it, it does occur to me that one of the the strategies, one of the goals, I think, of the the party these days, is to convince the, the the rest of the world, if not their own people, that every other government around the world is, in some ways, how to put this, just as craven as they are. That is to say, they they want to they, they they think that the U.S. puts itself on this kind of pedestal. 
And in fact, of course, the U.S. kind of does in this sort of weird American exceptionalism. But they try to tear that down by showing, look, see, they're just as bad as we are. You know, they have no right to criticize us. And it always it always makes me think that when you start if you start playing the game the way they play it, then in some ways you've already lost the game. Right. It's a race to the bottom. And I think this is something I can't help but see that in the Trump administration, probably the probably the person behind this is is a former journalist himself, Matt Pottinger, who's who's been a advocate for a very hard line against China. Um, And in some ways, it's important. It's, It's a delicate balancing act uses you know ultimate cliche in talking about china but you want to have you need to have your bottom line you need to have your minimum moral standards that you follow when dealing with china you can't just give in and 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 whatever but if you constantly see the world and treat the world exactly like china does and try to uh to follow that course you're not going to be uh very successful and i think it's um yeah, this is it's just unfortunate because I mean clearly there were problems in the relationship and engagement hadn't worked as people had hoped and there were there were real systemic problems but um, simply playing this super hard line, it doesn't really bring you anything. At the end of the day, um, they have nothing to show for it, just like many of the other foreign policy um, ed, you know, things that they've tried in the, in the Trump administration. Yeah, it seems to me like uh, the, a, a country like like uh, like any organization has 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 different components in it has has different representative groups, and the personality that emerges sort of depends on who you put in charge, and that's pr- true of every president. It seems like er- so far we've had presidents who 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 take the advice of seasoned uh, or hopefully you know China experts, and uh, try to to mitigate the problems and move forward according to reasoned advice. It seems like Trump has put all of these people in charge. Uh, like like the the uh, Peter Navarro's and the John Bolton's, who were really you know third stringers. I mean, these people are not the top people. I mean, Bolton is sort of a caricature. Navarro, and with all due respect to my former colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Matt Pottinger. I mean, he, he's a, a fine person, but if he's your main, or you seems to be like the only one of the only people with real China experience in the room. That's a pretty thin bench. You aren't getting a variety of opinions, and you can see it. They don't. Pompeo just takes this increasingly strident and pointless line toward China. There's no. See, the thing with the Trump administration, like all of their things, the same with North Korea. There's no end game. Like, what are you trying to actually accomplish? What actually are you? Do you want China to do? You want to overthrow the Communist Party and bring in multi-party democracy? This seems to be like what they really want, or something like that, or, right. or weaken it, or something like that. Some way that they say, "Uncle," but in what way? What actually? You know, we're going to have a big trade deal, but then they don't, and they don't. They never think it through. It's just sort of tweet by tweet, week by week. The main thing seems to be let's get to November and be able to spin some kind of a story, blame the pandemic on China, and then we can maybe hobble to victory and get in our second term. That seems to be the only real goal. Right. Trump's personality has been imprinted on this this whole, on the United States governance at this point. Uh, let me ask you uh, just about the effects of all this, though. The, uh, our longtime friend, China Hand Orville Schell, once said back then when the expulsions were occurring that these moves were sort of tantamount to closing an embassy. Uh, you know, he, he sort of put the, uh, you know, the import at something at that level. How, how do you assess the damage here? And, and what do you think the state of journalism in the PRC is at this point? How can we move forward, at least on the U.S. side? 
Well, not, I mean, I, I mean, it's a little awkward because I'm one of the people involved, but I mean, I think Richard McGregor, um, former FT correspondent now in, in Australia, he put it well when he said it's like, it's like in a game of chess when you're exchanging uh, rooks for pawns. So you're, you're, you know, you're, you're getting rid of 60 Xinhua hacks out of 600 Xinhua hacks who are totally replaceable, you know, the cooks and drivers and God knows all these people who are in this, these Chinese organizations. And, and, but you're losing, you're gutting, completely gutting the news gathering abilities. Because the thing you have to remember is that news organizations have the quality news organizations have, con- have been concentrated into just a few groups, a few organizations over the past couple of decades. No longer are there correspondents for the Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Miami Herald. Those those bureaus are all closed, and you just have the Times. Basically, you just have the Times and the Journal that are capable from the U.S groups that are capable of doing investigative reporting. You have individually very good people at the Post um, and at, at a few other organizations, but they're quite thin. They're just a couple of reporters there. So they don't have really the, in addition to covering the daily news, it's hard for them to really dig into to meaty topics. It's the Journal and the Times that have gone to Xinjiang and reconstructed all of the stuff about the camps. They've dug into the finances of senior leaders. They have the they have the manpower to do that, the personnel to do that. Um, and I think that that's the problem. The problem is that's all pretty much gone right now. I don't know how many people are left for the Times. I mean, I think. There's just a few, and, and and many of them can't get back into China now because of the pandemic and the visas and so on. But that's a separate issue. But even in the best case scenario, there'd just be a few people from about a dozen. So you've gutted that completely. And I think, yeah, what does it mean long term? I'm concerned that more and more, this is happening anyway, we have opinion being made about China by people who are not in China, who have rarely been to China, who are more Twitter pundits and people spinning stuff and writing op-eds and columns. And, and they, they have very little knowledge base. And I think this is probably a trend that's just going to continue and that this will exacerbate, that you'll have fewer boots on the ground, fewer real reporting, real reporting facts, not just somebody who has a clever idea that holds up well for an 800-word op-ed thing and tweets well and gets a bunch of likes and follows and all that sort of stuff, but people who are actually moving the needle on what we know about China. We have just too few of those people. It seems like one of the biggest problems we've had with uh with uh, information flow uh, among the two countries and, and what you know journalism can do is that there's always been this tendency of they always know more about us than we know about them. Uh, and that's for historical reasons, structural reasons. It has to do with the nature of their media. And it seems like that this uh, having reporters in there uh, and having people on the ground like you was always an essential way of sort of redressing this inequality or, or uh, uh, this asymmetry of information flow. From what you're describing, this is just going to get worse. Yeah, I think it's also um, exacerbated by the 
change in the way that diplomats operate. You know, embassies and diplomats used to be much more open. People came and went and they sort of um, met a lot more people. Now, if you're the political secretary or whatever in the in the U.S. embassy, you're living in sort of a bunker. People can't come into the embassy as much. It's harder for them to get out and go and meet people. So I, I feel like the, the government or the U.S. in general, the government itself and its internal channels and then the public uh, through public channels it just doesn't have as much information I mean we have I I think we had just have increasingly it's funny because we have obviously through digital technology and stuff like that we have more ways of finding out things in theory but we don't actually have a lot of well researched and reported facts or articles uh, on China. It seems like less than in the past almost. You know, Ian, one of the things I've, I've really uh, enjoyed um, about your books and your articles is that you, you really do straddle the world, I think, between you know, journalism and academic research. And I'm not saying these things are mutually incompatible, but I was, you know, I'm, I'm going to get kind of fanboy here for a moment. You know, when I, I think of like the book Souls of China, which, uh, you know, it really, it has a, a journalist way of capturing a story and taking the individual characters and using them as a lens to talk about some pretty serious and weighty issues. At the same time, it's not just a, hey, look who I met one day at the temple. There's obviously also um, a great deal of, of research into the subjects of religion and religious organizations. And I think that's one thing that has really characterized the work that you've done. Uh, here in China, and I, I just want to. This is just again. This is just me being, I guess, I guess a, a little bit of a fanboy. But one of the things I really loved about Souls of China was how you differentiated between religion and belief. Would you mind going into that a little bit more? Like when you, in your research and we're talking about these terms like Zongjiao and uh, you know Xinyang, like the religion and belief and the difference between the two. How do you think that plays a role in in people's spiritual life in, in China today? Um, well, well, I think that the problem is that these some of these words, especially religion, Zongjiao, are, are loaded um, political words for many people, and they imply a very formal structure and hierarchy that doesn't apply doesn't match how most people practice religion, if you want to say, just let's just call it religion or, or how they, what they believe in. Um, and it, it, if you say to many people, if you're, are you a member of this religion or not, they may think you're asking if they're a formal kind of lay member of the temple. You know, if, many temples will give their lay members a little book or you take a class at the temple and then you get a kind of certificate and they maybe think, well, that's, I'm not one of those people. But then if you ask them actually what they do, um, that's the key thing. So it's usually it's the best survey questions. And it's probably instructive for just in general interviewing people. Don't try to ask people how they label themselves, but what they actually do. So if you actually, if you ask people, how many do you ever go to a temple? Uh, how many times do you go to the temple? Um, there's a great survey, it was already 10 years old now, by um, Yao and Badham, which publishes a book, um, and they ask those kind of questions to thousands of people. And do you believe that a, a Buddha, a Fu, which could just be defined more broadly as a, go, a god, 
has intervened in your life in the past year in some way? And 25% of Chinese people say yes. It uh, doesn't mean that they're all Buddhists or that they're all formally religious people, but they do believe in those kinds of higher things. So I think that's a better way when you're asking people, in other words, when you're interviewing people, regardless of the topic, don't ask leading questions and try to get them to define themselves. Are you a Christian or not? Or, you know, like that sort of thing. Just try to find out what people do rather than what, what the labels, because labels are often in China, I guess everywhere, but uh, are often problematic. Maybe just in the modern world, it's like that. In the United States, it's the same. People say they don't go to church, but then many people still believe in some higher being and things like that. Doing that kind of research too, I know you were working on the research, if I'm, if I'm guessing correctly, kind of in the early 2010s. That research kind of requires us almost like an ethnographic approach to, to the subject. Is that something do you think is going to be is possible for researchers? I mean, access right now for, for, for many research is difficult, but those researchers who are here, do you think those kind of subjects are going to be as it's going to be as easy to kind of do that kind of deep embedded research? Or do you think that the new climate will affect that? And I mean, I'm even thinking, too, that there was a time when, uh, you know, people could kind of base in Hong Kong and kind of carry out research piecemeal on the in China or in the, the mainland or however you want to describe it. And now with the new national security law, you have even researchers, academics, never mind journalists who are kind of concerned about transiting or keeping their notes there, that kind of thing. So I'm kind of curious in, in your experience and in talking with other researchers, you know, what are we looking at going forward in terms of the, the kind of quality of information, not just from journalism, but from academics uh, in, in China at this point? I think it's a real issue. Uh, many academics are concerned, not so much because of the national security law. I think that that's one of these typical laws that's meant to be purposely vague and nobody's quite sure, but if they, it's probably meant to be scaring away people from overtly criticizing the government and things like that. But just in general, it's harder and harder to get a visa to go to China. I mean, forget the pandemic, it's harder to get permission. We all know the archives have closed off and many of those books that relied on archives, not, not just for the famous books on the famine and how many people died in, during the Great Famine of 58 to 61, but just more broadly on, on a variety of, of, of issues, um, policing, or it could be historical, you know, going back to the Qing Dynasty. It's just harder and harder to get into the archives. So that's, um, that's one issue. And I think it is hard to embed yourself as an ethnographer. It used to be easier maybe to get some guanxi from a, you know, you know some professor, somebody you met at a conference and they say, yeah, we'll write you that letter of introduction you need to go do spend some time in the field. Um, I think that's, that's, that's definitely, academics say that that's just become very, very difficult to, to carry out. Um, so I think we just have to accept that that's part of the overall closing of China to some degree. Do you feel like that, uh, that a new strategy or a new sort of mindset is needed for sinologists and reporters and academics that, you know, heretofore, I think we all kind of had a very aspirational mindset that, that we were, uh, that China was opening up. We had new freedoms. Uh, we had, we could explore subjects that we previously couldn't. There was the internet and it seems like the aspiration model has got to go away and maybe a new model of sort of, the, of you know, they talk about uh, 
politics as the art of the possible. It seems like, it, you know, China being all politics now, do we, how do we move forward sort of searching for things that are possible to do rather than things that we think are meaningful and that are aspirational? Well, one possible solution is that there could be more collaboration with Chinese academics. Of course, it's hard for Chinese or even harder for Chinese academics to tackle sensitive issues. But there's, if you think of ethnography or something like that, there are more and more Chinese ethnographers who are going out in the field and doing work and publishing high quality articles. And so it's uh, in those less sensitive in less sensitive areas, it's still possible. But I mean, even it's, yeah, I suppose I have to issue a caveat on that because even things that don't seem like they're that sensitive, uh, many people still pull their punches. Um, but, you know, maybe one way to be less pessimistic is even during the culture, to think back to the Cultural Revolution when many people were based in Hong Kong and sort of peering into China, trying to figure out what was going on. Many people got it surprisingly right. Um, and many of those reports that were done with you know, refugees and stuff like that, they were giving a fairly accurate portrayal of what was going on in China. Well, if I could just add one more thing, a positive note maybe and see what you think. Despite the state-to-state conflicts and sticking points and the the current climate, um, I have found so far, and I've been in sort of like you are, you are in a sort of a expelled from, from China for a different reason, but that that the the person to person contact with me personally and my china contacts through wechat and everything have continued apace that they still uh, make contact with me i still can do tv shows and interviews and all kinds of academic ac- activities by zoom or vuv or whatever it is they use do you find that 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 encourage have you found the same thing and first of all and do you think that's an encouraging aspect well, it is if you already have the contacts built up. I think for for us, it's easier because we spent years in China and we have those kind of contacts. But I think if you were a grad student coming in who hadn't that, it might be, might be harder. It would be harder. Um, but yeah, for sure, you can still, if you're in WeChat, I mean, one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm writing a, a PhD on these Chinese, on these religious organizations. And, and when you're in these WeChat groups, the the Chun, the sort of yeah groups. They um, there's a rich flow of information and, and articles that people are sharing and all kinds of cool things. Uh, that of course you can still do when you're overseas, unless your account is closed or something like that. But uh, so yeah, it's, it's still possible. There's still ways. I think that societies in general around the world are more transparent because of all of these digital technologies. And you could argue perhaps that it's even if you're not in China, you can probably know more about China now than you could if you were in China 30 years ago, let's say, uh, when people didn't know what was going on in the province next door. So, Ian, tell me a little, tell us a little bit more. Uh, you've, you've, you've mentioned it on social media and you just mentioned it here again. Tell us a little bit more about the, uh, the transition into academia and uh, writing for, for the PhD. And I know there's a, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, it's a lot of things going on this this year uh, with you being a new father and uh, also the PhD. So tell us what's what's coming up. Uh, research, teaching, writing. What what what's happening going forward? 
Right. Uh, well, I'm going to um, tentatively planning to go to Hong Kong in the autumn uh, to HKU to teach in the journalism department there, uh, which is run by uh, another former correspondent, Keith Richburg, who used to be with the Washington Post. And I'll be teaching a course there on feature writing and on covering religion in China. Um, part of the expulsion order is that we cannot uh, work as journalists in Hong Kong. And so I will uh, ref respect that. And anyway, I feel there's so many journalists in Hong Kong <laughs> covering stuff there. You don't really need another person. Um, and I think it's time probably to move. And I've been planning this as a, as a PhD to move more toward academia. Uh, the PhD is at Leipzig University in Germany. Um, Philip Clart, he's a, a specialist in folk religion. He's my advisor. Uh, German universities don't have a residency requirements, uh, so you just have to uh, write the, the, the thesis. And I'm writing it on folk religious organizations in China. I've collected all the material I need, fortunately. Um, and so I'm just at the point of processing all of this stuff and trying to figure out exactly what it is I'm trying to say, which I think is always the real battle when you're writing a PhD because there's so many ways you can take it. Um, and then at that, and then I'll, I, I hope to finish that, say, in the next two years and then uh, probably try to convert it into a book um, at, at some point. So what about your personal life? Uh, you're now a member of the Brotherhood of Fatherhood. Well, it was a very difficult birth. I wrote about that in the, in the New York Review of Books on their blog. It was right at the high point here in the UK of the pandemic and the hospitals were full and it was a, a pretty terrible scenario. But um, our son Lucas is fine. He's healthy. And um, I'm enjoying it a lot. I mean, it certainly, you have to become in some ways more efficient. You know, you can't sort of spend as much time on social media and stuff like that. It's like, you've got an hour. He's going to wake up in an hour, you know. The monster <laughs> the monster's going to be awake in an hour. I've got an hour. I've got to, like, really hammer out that, you know, try to write another couple hundred words or, or figure this out or figure that out or read this or do something. And so you kind of compartmentalize and try to just achieve sort of limited things. But if I I guess, you know, it'll, it'll work out and I won't completely go crazy. Um, yeah, and then you begin to also think longer term, you know, where do we want to settle down? Will we move back to the United States? Uh, my partner, Sheehan, is, is from Singapore. We're going to go to Singapore later this year. She has a residency at, a, at the Center for Contemporary Art in Singapore. Um, where she'll be making visual, she's a photographer and video videographer, and she'll be making some art there. So we're going to go there from December to March of next year and be in, be in Singapore. And then after that, we'll come back to the UK. We're not sure whether we'll spend, whether the UK will be our home or not. Um, maybe go back to Germany. I'm a permanent resident there. Um, there's pros and cons of both countries. And well, maybe the US also, it's, we're sort of open to various options. Yeah, so, so thanks a lot, Ian. We really appreciate you doing the podcast, especially uh, at this particular time. I know you have a lot of... Uh, a lot of irons in the fire, as they say. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. It was great talking to you. And uh, yeah, no, it's a, it's a really challenging year. It's a huge change, I think, for everybody. I, you know, usually these turning point years, people in history, people only identify later. But I think it's, this year is really likely to be 
a really, really important year. When we look back, say, in 50 years, most, some of us, I don't think any of us will be here in 50 years, but, <laughs> but you know, uh, Lucas, uh, young Lucas, young master Lucas will be a middle-aged person to look back, and, and I think they'll probably think 2020 was really uh, a sort of annus horribilis, as the Queen put it, uh, and a number of years ago. But in some ways, maybe it'll change things, or maybe it would, they're, they're try to be optimistic and think about the positive changes of slowing things down a little bit, um, and, and maybe we can get a grip on climate change coming out of this. I'm not terribly optimistic about that. But I think it's it's a, a fantastic. Yeah, it's a really interesting time for for me at least. Okay, great. Well, I know you're not going to stop writing about China, so I look forward to uh, you know more in your archive that your son, fifty years from now, will will be able to look back on with pride. Uh, so. So, so yeah, and we'd like we'd love to get you back on the podcast at later date uh, okay. as things change. It'd be great to yeah. We'd like to remind uh, listeners to Barbarians of the Gate that the podcast is available on iTunes and all the various uh, podcast uh, distributors, but also especially a shout out to the LA Review of Books, the China Channel, which is just chinachannel.org category podcast Barbarians at the Gate. So check out uh, episodes on that and also other China material and and, uh, stories and and pieces that they have on that site are, are really quite excellent and worth checking out. So uh, it's been great talking to Ian. Uh, we'll have uh, more next week, uh, next couple of weeks. And uh, it seems like in the, this COVID era, two weeks is a lifetime. Many things could happen the next time, so I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. Jeremiah, anything, any final words of wisdom? No, but Ian, it was just so great to see you. It's so great to talk to you. And I uh, uh, just also note that you can find all of us on Twitter, although Ian, not as much as you once did before the pre-baby days. Uh, but I'm at, at Jeremiah Jenny, and David is... David, David two underscores Moser, not one. David underscore underscore Moser. There we go. All right. Thank you, everybody. And join us again for another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. <laughs> <laughs>